let me encourage you, if you've not been baptized as a believer, to consider getting baptized. It's an easy command to obey. Uh, Come see me after the service or go see Pastor John. We have baptisms next week uh, in the lake. It's going to be fun. I've admitted and I have shared with some of you before that a couple summers ago, uh, I read the book, The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. Yes, I read that book. I admit to that. And if you don't know the story, I'm going to kind of give you a little heads up about it, as probably most of you know it, but let me just tell you. It's a story of, of two teenagers in love, and both of them are facing the reality of dying young of cancer. The guy, Augustus Waters, has some pretty deep disappointments of not being able to live a life of greatness and accomplish big things that will live on in a legacy. He wants to leave a mark upon this world. And what bothers him most is being another unremembered casualty in the ancient and inglorious war against disease. But his girlfriend, Hazel Grace Lancaster, no relation, (laughs) didn't seek this hero mentality, but sought to live a simple life of noticing the good things in the world, and loving those near to her. And now, many of us appreciate, I appreciate the sentiment and the simplicity of of Hazel Grace to be content, to play our small role on this earth. But if you're like me, most of us have this mindset that we want to be like uh, Augustus Waters. We want to make a dent accomplish great things on this earth for God and and be a hero with a lasting legacy. We read these Bible stories in the Word like, oh yeah, I want to be like Moses. I want to be like David, Deborah, Esther, Peter, and Paul. We want to be great for God. We want to be a hero. We make this huge gospel impact on the world. I hate to break it to you, but most of you will not be the hero. You won't be well-known, and billions will have never heard of you. And the good news is, that's okay. God set it up that way. Rather than advancing his mission and his work through heroes, God has chosen to use a corporate people called the church. And even though he uses great leaders, they are not alone in their work as God also chooses to use normal people like us in the advancement of his work on this earth. It's a corporate reality. And it's this corporate reality that we are going to see this morning as we look at a bunch of normal people playing their part in the advancement of God's work on this earth. So if you want to hear a story about normal people, let's look at it. Turn to the book of Ezra. We are going through the book of Ezra. If you can't find it, look in your table of contents. Still can't find it, look on the person next to you. Ezra is a hard book to find. Maybe you've not read it before. We started it last week. We'll be going through it over the next few weeks. When you come to a book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it helps me to figure out where we are historically. So I've created a little timeline. Maybe this will help you. Let me put the timeline up. 
goes like this. God created the world. And as you know, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And God was going to wipe out humanity. But he spared Noah and his family and the flood. After time, he called Abraham. And from Abraham, he's going to create many descendants. At that time, Israel was God's chosen people. Israel, escaping the famine, went to Egypt, stayed there for 400 years. And then remember the exodus, the plagues and all that, out of Egypt. That's called the first exodus. Then it was the time of the kings. And we have the the king David, a man after God's own heart, who followed the Lord. After him, it didn't go so well. The kingdom splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom called Judah. And after time, the northern kingdom fell into sin and idolatry. They are destroyed as they go into exile, and they do not come back. But Judah, the southern kingdom, also was in sin and idolatry. They were exiled into Babylon due to their sin. But then the second exodus happened. They were out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and restore worship. Then we have 400 years of silence where we don't have anything in the word written about what was going on. And then Jesus Christ comes on the scene, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, is buried, is, is risen. And he says, come to me, repentance and faith, and I'll forgive you. And that's the third exodus where we are forgiven and we come free of our sins. Ezra is the story of the second exodus, the establishment in the land, the comeback, rebuild the temple, restore the people in the word of God. That's where Ezra is at historically. Now, what's going on in the book? Well, just kind of give you some heads up where we're going. The first six chapters of Ezra are about the original exiles, what we like to call the first wave. They returned to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The effort was led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Once we hit chapter 7, about 80 years have passed since the exiles have returned. Then Ezra comes on the scene. So we don't see Ezra on the scene until chapter 7. He comes on to establish people in the ways of the Lord and his law. Ezra and Nehemiah overlap in their ministries. You're more familiar probably with the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he came to build the walls. Ezra came to build the people. Nehemiah was working on these walls of protection around uh, Jerusalem, and Ezra is there to focus on the renewal of God's people, spiritually renewed to commitment to the Lord. And the good news is, is what we see, the kind of the point of Ezra, is that God doesn't scrap his wayward people, but he restores and renews them so they can worship him. And the story is about going from Babylon to Jerusalem. Here all the people are in Babylon, and we have the second exodus as they head back to Jerusalem. Now, that story is pretty cool, pretty exciting, but you're not going to believe what I'm going to preach on today. I'm going to preach on a list. Sounds exciting, right? I'm going to preach on a list of who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's it. We're going to talk about names. Let's get excited. You'll come across lists from time to time in the Bible, and you're thinking, why is this here? And maybe you just fly by it, ignore it. But let's just pause for a moment and go, why, why is this list here? It's a list of people and households that returned from the exile to play their part in rebuilding the temple. It's just a, it's just a list of people. I think 
one of the enduring reasons why this list is here is to show that, hey, God used a lot of normal people to accomplish his work. No one is irrelevant in the work of God. The advancing of his work through this world doesn't just come through the the well-known heroes, but through normal people like you. And like me, I hope you're not offended by me calling you normal. We could be on this list. And this list, just kind of let you know where we're going, it's going to include a list of leaders, a list of the laity, a list of religious servants, the list of the unregistered, and of the generous. Now, if you hold on, if you hang in there, I'm I'm really not trying to bore you. You're probably wondering, I came to church today, and we're going to read a list. What's up with that? Totally not trying to bore you. I just want you to stay engaged. It's going to, God's word is still going to teach us. It's going to be very encouraging. So let's, let's start off with the leaders. And, and in case you're wondering if I'm going to read every single verse, I'm not. Breathe. Okay, you'll be okay. But we're going to go through a lot of it. So let's, let's start with Ezra 2, verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Remember last week we saw God stir up the Persian king Cyrus to issue a decree that allowed the Jews to return to their land and rebuild their temple. The fact that there are exiles is supernatural. Because if you remember when the northern kingdom went to exile into Assyria, they assimilated among the people and there was no more. They, 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 they vanished. But we don't have that happening here. These exiles in Babylon were pretty much held together. They they retained their unique identity, which enabled them to return to exile. And we're told to settle in Jerusalem and in Judah. Now look at the list of their leaders in verse 2. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehem, and Bana. Zerubbabel is mentioned here. He's a great man of God. He, he's an instrumental leader in rebuilding of the temple. And yet I do not understand why parents will not name their son Zerubbabel. I will pay $5 to the first child at EBF named Zerubbabel. Another instrumental leader and almost always connected to Zerubbabel is Joshua, the high priest. Nehemiah is mentioned here, but this is not the Nehemiah of the biblical book of Nehemiah, as he will come a hundred years later, and this Mordecai is not the Mordecai of the biblical book of Esther. And yet these are still great leaders that God used. God used these leaders in the first wave of exiles to get a jump start on rebuilding the temple. Though no one is irrelevant in the work of God, God still uses leaders. He uses leaders to lead his people in advancement of his work. And as I was thinking about these leaders and the work they had to do, there was a a, a book that came to mind that kind of held together the common traits. It's called H3 Leadership by Brad Lominick. And this H3 Leadership has the idea of these leaders, uh, be humble, stay hungry, and always hustle. 
And I was thinking about these leaders coming back and the daunting tasks they had, and they were clearly humiliated uh, and came back in humble under the discipline of God. They were hungry for the Lord, and they were ready to be used by him, and they were ready to hustle and work hard. God is using these leaders to lead his people in the work on rebuilding the temple. Now, as we move on to the specific list of returnees, many are uh, debating why all the numbers and listings of people. Maybe it was, uh, it was to show who had land rights or maybe who was an Israelite by blood or maybe it was for tax purposes. Or maybe it's just a list of people who returned to show that no one is irrelevant in God's work. Let's look at the laity or the ordinary people distinct from the leaders. Let me just look at some of the names. Uh, Verse 2. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. When it's talking about the sons of, it's, it's just giving you Jewish families and extended families. Some are actually listed by location. If you see, jump down to verse 21, it says the sons of Bethlehem. And verse 28, jump there, it says the men of Bethel and I, 2.23. And verse 34, it says the sons of Jericho, 3.45. So whether or not they had family listings or locational listing, these are just normal, everyday Jewish people coming back and getting established in the land. They are matter to God, and they are important to, uh, not, uh, to the rebuilding of the temple. Too many times when you think about the laity as distinct from maybe the spiritual leaders of the land, those who are in non-vocational ministry roles. Back in the day, the church kind of made this big distinction and many people thought their, their work wasn't important. I'm hoping that we're starting to move beyond that in our, in our day and age to know that what, if, you're, if you're not a pastor or, or in the full-time vocational ministry, it's totally it's fine, okay? And God is going to use you in your work to make uh, an impact in loving your neighbors and contributing to the common good. Uh, and you're also involved in the local church and building up the body of Christ. And if you're a stay-at-home uh, mom or dad, God is using you in building up your children and loving your family. So just know that God is, is doing a great work through you to flourish in excellence to be involved in this gospel advancement, whether you're a full-time vocational ministry or not. So we have the leaders, we have those who are called the laity, and then we have the religious servants. This would be more of those who are working uh, with the temple. Jump down to verse 36 of the religious servants. Verse 36 says, The priest, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emmer, 1052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Harem, 1,017. It's significant to note, this is about 10% of the returnees, these, these priests. These men seem eager to return and worship in the house of the Lord. But the Levites, those who would help the priests, do not seem too eager to return because there's not many of them. We see them along with the singers. Look at verse 40. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atar, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, 
the sons of Hattatai, and the sons of Shobai, in all 139. That's, that's not a lot. There should be a lot more Levites returning than that. But those Levites are probably comfortable in Babylon. And they're thinking, are you kidding me? You want me to go back and do menial work in Jerusalem? No, thank you. But some actually did step up and return. But there's also some temple servants that came along with them. Look at verse 43. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasaphah, the sons of Taboth. In addition, we have Solomon's servants from a past era. Look at verse 55. Uh, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hosephoreth, the sons of Peruda. And you want to jump down to verse 58. It says, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. We have the Levites, we have the temple servants, Solomon's servants, the singers, and the gatekeepers. All these people, all voluntarily, they're not being forced on their own free will. They are returning to Jerusalem to do the menial grunt work behind the scenes. They're going to do the ministry. And at times the ministry is difficult, but these uh, people have stayed in it for the long haul, and these religious servants are ready to return and get back to work in the temple. And he's working, God is working, even through these normal, unknown people to do his work. Now, the next category is the unregistered. The unregistered. Some people went back to the land who were unable to prove their rightful Jewish descent and claim land. They're unregistered. Look at verse 59. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Jump to verse 62. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. That would be an instrument to determine God's will. So God is holy, and he may only be approached uh, during this time by those with the right descent, specifically in the priesthood. And until their background could be determined, they were barred for ser- from serving at the temple, which I find interesting that even though they couldn't prove their ancestry, they still returned. Like, like just, they're just telling us, we don't have to have all our issues worked out before we follow the Lord. We're jumping in. We're ready to go. Let's go. And now the last category, the last category is the generous. This people that not only returned, but they gave sacrificially to the rebuilding of the temple. Look at verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 diroks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. So not only do they leave the comfortable surroundings of Babylon to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, but they gave sacrificially to see it rebuilt. And if you notice in verse 69, it says they gave according to their ability. 
And that, that's basically what God's calling us to, to give according to our ability. That's how our church has been surviving and thriving over the years. There's, there's many uh, college students here and people that are guests. They always wonder, how in the world do you survive and thrive over the years? And basically, it just comes down to everybody that goes here, gives here, according to their ability. And that includes college students. College students give part of the budget, as well as others who go here, give here. And by God's grace, he puts it all together, and the ministry continues to flourish here in Evanston. Now, that's the scenario of the list. Chances are you've never seen that list before or read through it before, that God is using a variety of people, normal, unknown people, to continue on with his work. And I just want to be honest with you. I struggle with this concept of God using normal, unknown people to carry out his work. I I like to read the stories of the heroes that are getting it done. And I think, wow, I want to be the hero. Read the stories to my kids. I'm like, you don't want to be these guys and girls. You want to be the hero. And, And I've determined that I have an issue and I have a problem and chances are you have the problem as well. And I've talked about this problem before, and so I want to talk about it again. It's the problem of individualitis. Individualitis. Where it's that it's all about me, or it's, it's, it's about what I'm doing, rather than what God is doing through us. It's about me rather than the church. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time here kind of attacking a little bit of that because we just saw a name, names after names after names of people God was using for his purposes. And I want to spend the rest of my time attacking this individualitis. I once heard a teacher named Andrew Wilson, and he listed seven ways you can tell if you suffer from individualitis. And so if you want to write these down, we'll put them up. I just found this so helpful. Seven ways to tell if you suffer from individualitis. So let's start with number one. You suffer from individualitis if you think, I have a destiny rather than we have a destiny. I have a destiny rather than we have a destiny. Do you see God's plan in the world and your plan in the world more individually or corporately? Go ahead, be honest. Do you see it more individually or corporately? Is there anything in your heart that that is elevating your destiny above the destiny of God's people? And when you're thinking about vision, you're thinking about your future, are you mainly thinking about It's about me. What's my destiny? I mean, just be honest. I mean, I'm I'm there. What's my destiny rather than what's the destiny of God's people? Yesterday uh, on our street, we we have a lot of bunnies on our street, and they're all gray wild bunnies. Did you ever see these? They're everywhere, rabbits. But yesterday, we saw a pet bunny out among all the wild bunnies. All the wild bunnies in our neighborhood are all gray. The pet bunny was brown and white. And obviously, she stood out. And I I think she must have escaped and pulled a Zootopia, and she was out trying to fulfill her destiny. And while she was living the dream, my kids were figuring out how to catch her. Because we can't catch those wild bunnies. They've tried. But we figured we can catch this pet bunny. 
And so after some time of trying, they finally captured, oh, I mean rescued, they rescued this pet bunny. And the, and the, wild, the wild bunnies are just, they're all just eating the grass like popcorn, enjoying, watching what's happening. And, um, and I was thinking, wow, that's, that's kind of like how we are, right? We're like, I'm that pet bunny. I'm going to make it. That's my destiny. I'm going to get out. I'm going to explore. It's all about me. And you, the movies you watch, right, the books you read, they're about your destiny and what you're going to do to make a dent in this world. And when we see a list like this, it's like saying, hey, hey, hold on, hold on just a moment. Maybe you need to branch out beyond yourself and see that God is moving through his people. The corporate church. The second way you may suffer from individualitis is you read the Bible and think, this is for me rather than this is for us. Now, I understand you, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't read the Bible, make personal application. You should do that every single day, make personal applications to your life. But too many times I feel like we read the Bible and we leave out the promises to us as a people. Can can, can I give you an example? I'm going to quote maybe one of your your favorite Bible verses, okay? I'm not, I'm, I'm not, just, are you with me? Okay, here we go. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, right? Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I mean, I don't want to see any show of hands. Many of you have memorized that verse, but guess what? That is not an isolated promise to an individual, but that's a promise to the people of God. And I really believe that God wants us to get in the Word and make applications to ourselves. But I think we need to broaden our scope and say, oh, the Word of God is also speaking to a people. He's working through a people. When we meet in ethos communities, we are getting in the Word as a people. We're branching out beyond ourselves. We're making personal application, but we're like, this is a Word of God to His people. And as we meet in ethos communities, we're reminded that God is working in this world through a people called the church. Maybe you suffer from vigilitis, and this is going to hit home to some of you. Number three, you view the church as optional and not essential. If you're just popping in here for a little inspirational boost, and you're just kind of like, I'm in and out, I'm in and out, that, that is not the point of church. The church is where it's at. The church is not optional. This is the place to be. This is what God is doing on this earth. He is working through the church. And many of you are going to graduate soon, and you're going to move on. Uh, Maybe you're going to go to grad school somewhere else, or you're going to take a job and move on. Let me encourage you. One of the first things you should do when you get there is find a good church. Find a church that believes the Word of God, believes Jesus. Find a people of God to be with wherever you go next, because the church is where it's at. It's not optional. It's essential. Number four, you suffer from individualitis. If you, if you think, I have this gift, how will the church use it? Rather, the church has this need, how can I serve it? This morning we talked about the need of people to serve in children's ministry. That's a need that's before you. And we're asking you to sign up if you are, are available and you're going to be here for the summer to put your name down. We can follow up with you and get you in. And, and I'm encouraged by many of our church uh, people who go here. I, I met a new volunteer this morning, uh, Stephen. He's, he's helping tear down uh, all this and put it away at the end. 
If someone calls you on the phone and says, hey, can you volunteer? Can you do a little ushering? Can you do a little greeting? Can you do a little setup, tear down? Just jump in there. We want to be a people, kind of a yes people, like, oh, the church is where it's at. I'm there to help. Let's do it. Let's go. Number five, the gospel is just for you and never in terms of a people, Israel or the church. Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins, was buried, rose again. You can have eternal life by putting your faith in Jesus. But Jesus did not die just for you. He died for a people to draw a people to himself called the church. And if you're just walking around thinking, it's just for me, the gospel terminates on me, then you'll never share it or you'll never appreciate that the person sitting next to you, Christ died for them too, to draw people to himself. Number six, you tell you suffer from individualitis is evangelism is just you alone rather than with the whole church. Maybe you think about evangelism as like kind of you singing, uh, sitting at a, a pond with a, a fishing reel and you're like you've you got your single pole. But when you think about fishing, Biblical fishing, you should be thinking about catching fish with a huge net where you're going to need lots of people involved to bring in the haul, which means everyone should be involved in evangelism, not just some isolated people. And when we send out church planters, we like to send them out with a group of people who will do evangelism as well. As I said last week, our church is, uh, has a vision for church planning by uh, college campuses. So we have a community church and college students together. We planted our first church in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, and we sent a group there. We, we planted our second church, uh, Agape Church, in Rogers Park. We sent a huge chunk there. We planted our third church in Gainesville, Florida. We actually sent a chunk of people to Florida. And by God's grace, we're gathering again. And we're going to plant another church in Chicago. Tim Ophis is going to be our church planner, but he's not going by himself. We want to send a group with him. And I'll let you know in about three weeks where that's going to be at. We're going to have this huge reveal. And so you can get excited because we want to send people to go out and do evangelism and church planning together. Well, the last one, you can tell you suffer from individualitis. Number seven, culture change happens as great men and women rise up and change history rather than complex networks of people bringing about change. We're not dissing great men and great women of history who've done great things, but it's not as if the rest of us just sit there and observe. We are all involved in culture change as we function as the body of Christ. I think the question you need to ask yourself is not what you may have been asking yourself. So don't ask. Don't ask, what am I doing to impact the world for God? Don't ask, what am I doing to impact the world for God? But instead ask, what are we doing to impact the world for God? What are we doing? You may be in here this morning and think that you're irrelevant to the work of God. You're not. And you may think, okay, I'm, I, I, okay, I'm relevant, but now I need to sit home with my Bible, get my journal out, and say, okay, God, where can I be relevant in your work? Rather than sitting around with other people in the body of Christ and say, okay, where can we 
as the body of Christ, be relevant in impacting this world. Because no one is irrelevant. And God is using a people called his church. And and maybe a a message like this doesn't really stir you up as an individual to go reach your destiny, fulfill all your potential. But this, this is what God is doing. He's working through a people. So it may be, in a sense, discouraging to you, but it should be encouraging to you that you're not irrelevant. You're part of this deal, and God needs you to participate with the body of Christ in this world to see change happen in people's lives through the gospel, to see mercy extended. God is using his people, and by his grace, may he stir you up this morning that though you may feel normal and ordinary, you're part of something that is amazing. You're part of the church, and he's put you there through his death and resurrection, and he wants to use you for your glory. So stay close to the body of Christ. Don't go off on your own. Stay close, and may God use us to impact people here in Evanston and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have lists like this uh, in the book of Romans, book of Ezra. Elsewhere, there's lists that just mentions individuals. We know that you use your body. You use people. And I just ask that you would help us see that we're not kicked out. We're not irrelevant. That we're part of your work. And I do ask, God, that you would use us. I I pray for the... um, the man in here who just feels like he's a loser, that you're not going to do anything through him, just show him that he's not a loser. You saved him, and you've put him in a body to be used. I pray for the, for the woman in here who just thinks that, you know, she stays at home with kids and she feels buried, like you're not using her, but you let her know you're using her. And you've put us together as a body to encourage one another to be used in our specific gifts and to go on mission in the world together. We ask you to show us as a people what we can do together here in Evanston, what we can do in our neighborhoods, what we can do globally. Use us as your people to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.